Beautiful worship, beautiful worship. Please find your way, John chapter 15. We're crawling through this chapter. And the other pastors can be a witness to this. Your sermon's never done. Every time you, you go back, oh, I wish I had said this. Oh, should have brought this point up. So, you know, you're all the time just working on the sermon. Sometimes you just stay in that text for a long time so you can just get everything out. Okay, so we're going to do that. We're going to read John chapter 15 again. I know you're excited about it. We know that Jesus will be going to the cross soon. He will no longer be physically with his disciples. He is, so he's preparing them, equipping them to carry out the mission without him being there in the flesh. Now, that's a big change, to say the least. Now, as I meditated on these verses, this thought crossed my mind. Jesus, on that day, was preparing these 11 men to go out and change the world. He's prepping 11 guys to go change the world. He called these 11 guys to go preach the word that is an everlasting word. Think about that. Here we are, 2,000 some years later. What are we doing? We are studying the words that Jesus spoke to those 11 men. Those men carried the message of repent and be saved. Turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. Jesus is a way of salvation, they proclaimed. All men have sinned. All are in need of being saved from the penalty of their sin. And so they gave the message of hope. They shared the good news. Jesus is the way, the way of forgiveness. He is the truth and the light. What a beautiful message to all of mankind. Amen. And if mankind will search their own heart, if every person will search their own heart, they will know that they are not perfect or holy. They will know that they have sinned. Even the people who think they're good know they're not perfect. How do we know that? Because they will tell you, well, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. You know, I could use that. You know, they, they can't claim to be, be perfect because that can be disproven quickly. And they will also say, or they believe this, they hope that their good will outweigh their bad when they stand before God. Well, I'm here to tell them with confidence that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Search our hearts. We know that's not going to happen. But they do admit that there is bad in the world because they're saying, hey, my good's going to outdo my bad. So they're admitting there is bad. They admit that there is sin in their life, but they are not sure what to do about it. We want to give them the answer. The answer to their problem is Jesus. He is the good news. Now, I find this amazing. Here comes Jesus with the good news of salvation. And, what the, and, and how does the world respond to him? Kill him. Kill him. I'm proclaiming good news. Kill him. What was the world's response to the ones who carried out the message to the nations? Silence him. Kill him. I don't want to hear that good news. We don't want to hear that. So I say that so you won't be surprised if you get a negative response when you share the message that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Don't be surprised. Don't be discouraged. Keep on doing what God has called us to do. We never give up on doing what Jesus has told us to do. We all, not just pastors, we all are called to carry the message of salvation through Jesus Christ to the world, just as the disciples were called back then. Amen? Amen. Now, in the instructions that Jesus gave his disciples, there's a key word that's crucial to their mission. And that word is abide. So as we read the text, yes, we're going to read the text again. But this time, let's focus on the word abide. Not that, you know, we're, we're going to, not that other word that we underlined two weeks ago, if you remember, right? 
With that said, who is Jesus talking to in this text? You. Not me. Everybody. Stop doing that. But if, if you're like Julia Hennett, she's not here today. And if you have 12 different colored pins in your hand, where is she? <laughs> Y'all got a quick movement on me, man. I look for places. Well, she sat beside us the other week, okay? I want to tell you. And, and she's taking these notes, and I'm looking at her notes, and I'm looking at mine, and it's all, mine's like black and points and arrows and scribbles. And I look over her, it's like a piece of art over there. It's just beautiful work. So she's got all these different colored pens. So if you have a different colored pen today, let's underline the word abide and check out her notes when this is over, okay? I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Here we go. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides. In the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I. So have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So if we are called to be like Christ, then we must do as he did. He abided in the Father's love and kept the Father's commandments. We are to abide in Christ and his love and keep his commandments. His, his word is to abide in us. And if so, God will answer our prayers. Whatever we ask. We saw that last week. We learned that last week, what that verse really means. So what does it mean to abide? We're going to look at this word again. We touched on it last week, but we're going to go a little deeper today because there's a point that I want to make. To abide in Christ's love means to live in obedient dependence on his ongoing minute-by-minute minute supply of grace. Said that last week. To abide in Christ's love means to live in obedient dependence upon his ongoing minute-by-minute minute supply of grace. That's abiding in his love, right? Now, abiding in Christ in his word means allowing his word to fill our minds, to direct our will, and transform our affections. That means our relationship with Christ is intimately connected to what we do with our Bibles. Is it a centerpiece on the coffee table? Do we dust it off when people come over? Or do we hide his word in our hearts? Our relationship with Christ is connected to what we do with our Bibles. The word abide means to, mean to, means to act in accordance with. So if the word of God abides in our heart, then we will act in accordance with. If we want to know how to act and react, we must study our Bibles. Now, does the word tell us to abide only when the storms hit? 
Does it tell us to abide when only when trials and tribulations come our way? Not at all. Does the word say, does the word tell us to abide when we, when we want something? No. That's not abiding in Christ or the word. Abiding is a call that is much deeper than seeing Jesus as a fixer for all of our problems. I like what J.C. Riley says. Riley says, listen to this. To abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him. To be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have his word abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds, and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. That's a little more than just going to run into Jesus when we need something. Amen. We see in our text today the analogy of the branches united to the vine. It pictures an intimate, close relationship and not just a superficial acquaintance. Jesus is basically telling us that drawing life from him is essential. It is essential to depend upon him every second of our lives. Now, the reason I went back to, to what abiding means is because I want all of us to understand the depths of that word. The world tries to define what a Christian is, and we need to understand who we are and what these words mean to us. They will say that a Christian is one who has found religion and trying to live right. They miss the relationship and who we are and who people are when we abide in Christ. So I want to tell you, Christianity is more than holding right beliefs and adopting right behaviors. That does not make anyone a Christian. To be honest, anyone can do that. Just look at some of the world religions. That's what they've done. They hold to some right beliefs and they adopt some right behaviors. And I don't know what they do with that. But they don't have that relationship with Christ. At salvation, that is when we come to God and admit that we are sinners in need of saviors. At that point, Listen, we enter into a union with God that changes our legal status. What does that mean? It means when salvation comes, we then have a right standing with God. We have a righteousness that comes by faith, and that faith justifies us. And then we grow from there. Once we are justified, we then have communion with God. We have access to a, a life-giving, soul-thrilling, joy-producing communion with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, 1 John 1. And that is what I want all of, us to, all of us to see. Being a Christian is more than holding right beliefs or adopting right behaviors. It's more than just saying a prayer, even though that's where it begins. Listen, the Christian faith is about union and communion with Jesus Christ. Amen? It's about union and communion. Do you want to know if you're really saved? People all the time question their salvation. Am I really, really saved? You know, then do a self-examination. Do you desire an intimate relationship with Christ, or is he just your go-to man when trouble hits? Do you long for fellowship with God? Do you abide in him and his word? 
David says it best in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You know, that's why David was known as a man after God's own heart. He may have messed up many times, but he earnestly sought God. His soul thirsted for God. There was a desperation. There was a deep longing in his soul to have a right relationship with God. So we check our hearts. Do we have a longing for the right relationship with God? So anytime you question, am I really saved? Check your heart. Check your heart's desire. So when I say Jesus, so when Jesus says abide, he wants us to know that it's more than just thinking about God from time to time. It's about union and communion with Jesus. Everybody good with that? Everybody going to remember that? Union and communion. All right. So let's move on. Pruned if you do. Pruned if you. Thank you. We began studying the reasons for pruning last week. God prunes us so we will bear more fruit. He prunes us so we become more dependent on him. He prunes us to assure us that we are truly a child of God. And he prunes us so our prayers will be answered. And the last reason God prunes us is so we will live a life that glorifies God. And that one really brings it home, right? Look at verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you will bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And look how this text builds on itself. <laughs> Abiding is the secret of a successful prayer life. The closer we get to the Lord, the more we learn to think his thoughts. The more we get to know him through his word, the more we will understand his will. The more our will agrees with his, the more we can be sure of having our prayers answered. We talked about these answered prayers last week. We studied what had to happen for our prayers to be answered, but I did not say this. If our prayers are answered, that act will bring glory to the Father. How? Well, because we are like Jesus. We are abiding in Jesus. And that means we are doing the Father's will and we are praying the Father's will. Think back. What was, what, was that not one of the requirements for the answered prayers that we pray the will of God? That's one of the requirements. How did Jesus say we were to pray? How did he tell us to pray when he gave us the disciples' prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Say it with me. Your will be done. Thank you. Jesus taught us to pray the Father's will will be done. And if we pray his will, that prayer will be answered and God will be glorified. The greatest theme in the universe is the glory of God. And to live a life that brings glory to God is the believer's highest privilege and duty. There's no greater privilege. There's no higher call of duty for all you gamers there than to pray the Father's will and have that prayer answered. I told you before about Tammy's grandmother. Tammy and I get saved. We're excited. We want to tell everybody. Tammy goes and tells her grandmother. And what is her grandma's response? She said, oh, that's wonderful news. 
I've been praying for y'all for years. This was a lady who was praying God's will. And guess what? She saw God answer her prayer, an answer prayer that brought glory to God. Amen. So again, I say only those who are in union with Christ, who are in communion with Christ, can glorify God by having prayers answered. I was thinking about Jesus back then, equipping his disciples with these words. And and the 11 disciples were were soaking in every word possible, humanly possible, right, as Jesus spoke. And and maybe thinking about the life they had witnessed as, as Jesus is equipping them, maybe they're thinking about the life that they had witnessed that Jesus lived. From beginning to end, the life of Jesus was an unceasing offering of perfect obedience that glorified the Father. Whether in eating or drinking, resisting temptation against sin, speaking the truth boldly, or showing selfless compassion towards others and their needs, he lived to honor the Father above himself. So much he was obedient unto death, even to death on a cross. So what they saw what they saw was how Jesus glorified God. He did it with those of his obedience. He did it with his message. He did it with his prayers. He did it with his love. And he did it with his life. Because of the life that Jesus lived, they understood the life that they were called to live. And what they must do to glorify the Father as they go out into the world and proclaim his words. They had to be like Jesus. They had to live like Jesus lived. So let's roll that forward a couple thousand years, right? Here we are. We're redeemed and created in the image and likeness of Jesus, right? As Jesus imaged the Father, Colossians 1.15, we have been saved to image Jesus, Romans 8.29. He is the model of God's will for our human life. So if one is wondering how does one glorify God, look no further than Jesus. You know, I miss those little bracelets. They're pretty cool. What with WJD? They don't do that anymore, do they? Don't have those? Anybody got one? He's got one. <laughs> I like that. But, but if you're wondering, how does one glorify God? Look no further than Jesus. Jesus, the word of God made flesh who dwelt among us. That is where we look. And then we live a life that is continuing asking, what did Jesus do? How can I be like Jesus? How can I love like Jesus? How can I abide in Jesus? Think about this. To believe in God is to trust his word, and to trust his word is to obey and follow it. We get that, right? We we get that. That's preached to us all the time. We know that's what we're supposed to do. But I want to make note of the flip side. What happens when we don't do that? What's going on when we don't follow his word and and, and when, when we're not obedient to the word? Here's what it is. It means that we are putting ourselves above God. And not only that, we're judging God. Here's what we are saying to God when we do things our way instead of his way. God, I know you're an all-knowing God. You are the creator of all. You have created me in your image. You know what is best for me, but I believe you got this one wrong, God. So I'm going to do it my way. 
I believe I can do better with my life than you can, even though you're God. That's basically what we're saying to the Almighty God when we choose to disobey and do things our way. We need to fight against that and live a life that flees from that kind of behavior and run to Jesus and be asking, what did Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What do I do to glorify my Lord and Savior? Do we do it perfectly? Nope. But we strive to. We take steps to do it perfectly. Listen, even if they are small steps, small steps still glorify God. Look back at your life. Think about when salvation come, it came and you started uh, making changes. Ever how small they were at that time. Just think about that. Go back in time. And then think about the comments that people made about your changes. Those changes glorified God. How? People noticed, didn't they? They noticed even the smallest changes of you. I was speaking to a young lady this past week, and she was telling me and Tammy about the, quote, hostile work environment she's in. She said her manager has a bad potty mouth. Is there a good potty mouth? <laughs> yeah, the potty mouth. She never said anything to him. You know, she just, she just never spoke the way he did. He took notice and he asked her about it. She was then able to begin to share Jesus with him. He's now asking questions about God just because of that small step of not partaking in the world's language. Did she walk around with the Shekinah glory of God at work and just say, I am holy? No, just a small step of not partaking in this world's language. She was taking steps to glorify God with her life and the world noticed. You want to be known in the way where people ask questions. You know, in the book of Acts, we read in chapter 19 that the early Christians were often called what? Followers of the way. The way. Why were they called that? It's because they were sanctified, set apart unto God to live an obedient life as a citizen of a kingdom that is not of this world, Philippians 3.20. They started walking in the way and people took notice. So I just want to say to everyone, especially young adults and kids, listen. Take steps in your life to get closer to God. I don't care how big. Just start taking steps. The steps will get bigger when you mature, I promise you. Not saying you're immature. Take those steps. Look, notice the progression in this chapter again. Verse 2 says fruit. Jesus says more fruit. We get to chapter 8. What does it say? Much fruit. It's a progression. Start taking steps, steps towards Jesus. Abide in him. Make sure that you are in union and communion with him. And the result will be that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's what Jesus said. Who are we proving to? Who are we proving that we are disciples of God? Is it to God? No, well, yes, but he knows everything. But we are proving our love to him with our actions. Are we proving to be a disciple to ourselves? Sure. You know, we, we're, we're, we're taking godly thoughts and putting them into action. That gives us assurance. 
because we know that without God working in us, there's no way that everlasting good works will ever come out of us. It gives us assurance of who we are in Christ. Are we proving to the world we are disciples of Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. When we change, when we bear much fruit, the world is forced to confess that Jesus must be a great God because he can transform such wicked sinners into godly saints. Look around the room. Jesus must be a great God because he can transform, transform such wicked sinners into such godly saints. Only God can change a person like that. The world may not like your change, but that's proof that they noticed your change. Listen to John 13, 34, 35. He says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. There you go. They will know if you, love, if you have love for one another. Love for one another is bearing much fruit. Love proves to the world that we are indeed disciples of God. Love is what sets us apart from the world. So abiding is the key to carrying out the, carrying out the mission. But love is the key to abiding. If you keep my commandments, verse 10, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So love is the key to it all. In order to abide, we must, we must first love. Let's look at this love. Last week, we talked about the love that the Father has for the Son and how that love from God is given to us. Now, we know that the Father loved the disciples. We know that the Father loves us. But how do we know what that level of love is or, or that type of love? You know, here Jesus, you know, he, he gave us the agricultural metaphor that he told his disciples, but it has limitations to it. When it comes to explaining the love that the father has for the son and the love that the son has for the disciples, it has limitations. It, it gives us a picture of love. It does. But it does not depict, listen, the unfathomable love that Jesus has for his disciples. Jesus is sending these guys out into a very hostile world. They needed to understand the amount of love Jesus had for them. They needed to know what type of love Jesus had for them. So Jesus uses the vine and branches so that they will understand that the disciples in Jesus are one, that they are connected, but Jesus wanted them to know more. So Jesus tells them in chapter 16 that God the Father loves them. They get reassured of that. But they probably not put it all together at this time that Jesus is the mediator of that love. So if the vine and branches is not an adequate analogy, what would be the best analogy? It would be this. The love of the father for the son. That's the best. You see, Jesus says this is how it works. Look at the love that the father has for the son. That's the same love that the son has for you. You couldn't get your heads around that. We can't get our heads around that. 
the depths of that love. But to even get a small picture of how much Jesus loves his disciples, how much he loves us, we must look at the love that God the Father has for his son. The love that the Father has for his son, listen, is perfect and complete love. So the love that Jesus has for us is perfect and complete. The depths of that love is incredible. You know, we throw that word love around so much. It really doesn't have any meaning anymore. You know, we say it all the time and prove my point. I'm talking to Isaac this morning. And I looked at him, I said, tell me you love me. You know what he said? I love you. He said it. Just threw that word out there like it was nothing. <laughs> I'm not sure if he really loves me or not. You love me? Okay. <laughs> Do you really love me, Isaac? What, what kind of love is it, Isaac? Is it, 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 if I murdered someone <laughs> and I was going to jail, would you go to jail for me? No. <laughs> That's what I figured. <laughs> now I'm rethinking if I'd go to jail for you or not. I just... <laughs> Still doesn't. <laughs> we just throw that word around, you know. We have to dig into the depths of what this means. You know, when we see these words in the, in the scriptures, I mean, dig in, dig in. We'll grow so tremendously when we do that. So before we investigate what great love is, <coughs> not that type of love me and Isaac have for each other, that, that, that greater love that Jesus spoke of in verse 13, we must talk about verse 11. This just hit me. It's like in, in between these love verses, Jesus says this, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What's he doing here? Well, we always keep the word in context, right? Jesus is preparing his disciples for the mission. He's preparing them for his physical exit. He's explaining to them what they needed to do so they would be able to complete the mission, to run the good race, to finish what God has put before them. But he also wants them to know that they will have everything they will need to fulfill this mission. Jesus is really driving home that they will have all the love they need they can have all the joy they need, and they can have all the peace they need. Those three things will get them through the hardest of times. And they went through some tough times. But they will be able to lean into the love, joy, and peace that comes from God. When fear comes, and it did. And when anxiety tries to take them over as it tried to. When the loneliness may have seemed overwhelming, they could lean on the love, joy, and peace that God gave them. And this love, this joy, this peace will help them overcome the world. Because this love, joy, and peace does not come from the world. It comes from God. It's different. It's much more powerful. If we look back at chapter 14 and verse 26, Let's read what Jesus said to the disciples then. Remember, he's prepping, them, he's prepping them for this mission back then. He said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
All right, here's where the squirrel ran across the window and I began to laugh at this verse. I'm sorry, I got, I got you about this. Even though it's not meant to be funny, I'm laughing. Thank God for the Holy Spirit that will bring all things to their remembrance. Just think about the chaos that would have occurred if the disciples were trying to take notes as Jesus was teaching them. You know, what, what, what did you, wait, oh, what do you say? You know, and what have they got? Some papers, some charcoal? I don't know what they got, you know. But, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute, hold on. They're interrupting Jesus and he's trying to teach. Like, you ever been to school and fear in school because you didn't take proper notes for a test? Could you imagine what these guys were thinking? <laughs> this is a big mission. He's equipping us. Man, I, I got to get this right. I got to get this right. Jesus said the help is going to be there. Holy Spirit's going to be there. He'll teach you all things and bring in remembrance all that I've said. Don't worry about the test. They were going to carry the word of God into the world, and they had the Holy Spirit to help them to bring all this to life. Just shot. I just see the class just sitting there. Didn't happen that way. Praise the Lord. So praise God for the Holy Spirit. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. That's what he tells them as he's sending them out. You cannot get that kind of peace from the world. The peace from God takes away fear. The peace that comes from God heals the heart and gives you peace in spite of the troubles of the world. Think about all the troubles that the disciples went through, and yet they were able to continue with the mission time after time after time with peace in their hearts. I wonder how many times they said, well, God knows this, and God's got this. That's the way we need to be. God knows this, and God got this. How many times did they say that when they faced opposition, when they were tortured or at the brink of death? They were able to do what they did because they had the peace of God in their hearts, the peace that surpasses all understanding. During the toughest of times, these men were able to have calmness of body, mind, and spirit because they were trusting in the power and grace of God. They had peace. That's what happens when that peace comes from God. You're able to have calmness in the body, mind, and spirit because we trust in the power and grace of God. Here's the kicker. All circumstances, all circumstances we must trust. I always go to Paul when he's in prison when I think about the peace of God. Chained to the wall in a cave, hungry, cold, hurting, and he's singing praise songs and sharing the good news to other prisoners and guards. Man, that, that, that peace comes only from God. Paul was trusting in the power and grace of God. So we do a self-examination. Do we do that? When things happen to us, do we trust? Do we have that peace? Because we should Because here's a side note. The Holy Spirit that filled Paul is the same Holy Spirit that lives in us. The peace that Paul had during all those times of suffering and persecution that he endured is the same peace that we can have. 
we all can have peace in our lives, no matter the circumstances. Is it there? We have to desire it. We got to want it and trust God. So God gave all of his disciples. That's all of us, the Holy Spirit and peace in their hearts so they would not fear. So there he gives them peace. And then here today, we see that God's given him, giving them joy, giving us joy. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your, and that your joy may be full. Jesus has taught that if you remain in my love, you will have peace. And he challenges the disciples to abide in him, be obedient to him in his words. Now is the, now, is it easier for man to think about, to, to think that being obedient? Is it easy for fallen man to think about being obedient all the time? Is that what we do? Or not. We don't. That's why it takes the power of God to change us. Does anybody like doing what we're told, obeying rules, being constrained? Kids? Can be oppressive and joyless. The truth is, sinful man does not, not like rules or boundaries. Now, to wipe that thought out of our minds, of the minds of the disciples, look at what Jesus did. Jesus insists that his own obedience to the Father is the grounds of his joy. Remember, we always look to Jesus. No one's greater than Jesus. And he says, being obedient to the Father has given him joy. He described it as my joy. And here he promises to those who obey him will share in the same joy. If, if you do what I have commanded you, your joy may be complete, he says. We have to understand what that joy is so we can live in it like Paul and the disciples did. The joy in a fallen world is at best shallow and incomplete. It really is. But the joy of the Lord is the gladness of the heart, of a heart that comes from knowing God, from abiding in Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a different joy than the world has to offer. This joy that God gives, it's, it's talked about all throughout the scriptures. Go, go, just do a word search on joy. It's in there from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It talks about the joy of being in God. Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. As a matter of fact, our Christian duty to rejoice in the Lord is stated in Philippians and Thessalonians. The word tells us in 1 Peter 1, 7, in Christ, the believer is filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We're supposed to have joy in our hearts that comes from God at all times. But listen, no one can have the peace of God nor can they have that inexpressible, glorious joy that can only come from God unless you have experienced the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we're going to look at that. We're going to go back and look at that next, uh, next week. We're going to look at true love next week. Maybe we'll underline love everywhere it is. I don't know. But think about what Jesus laid out to his disciples. He says this, be obedient to me and my word. Abide in me. Be in union and communion with me. Be overtaken by my love and go tell the world about me. Without being in union and communion with Jesus, there is no way we can be obedient. So the question is, do we want this joy that Jesus is offering? 
Do we really want this peace that Jesus says we can have? And do as Jesus did. Sharing his obedience. That obedience that is willing to put ourselves, our self-interest to death. And put God first in our lives. And when we do that, we will be able to understand more of the text that we will study next week in verse 12. That says, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I loved you. No greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you to do. Amen. That's Jerry.